If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 on page 1007 in the Black Pew Bible. As we continue this, our study in this portion of the book of Hebrews, which is a uh, chapter with lessons on saving faith from the lives of those who've gone before us. We're in the middle of three examples of this faith found before the flood. Last week we saw Abel. Tonight we'll, con- we'll think of Enoch. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider Noah. And so um, last week we learned by faith Abel worshipped. Tonight we'll see by faith Enoch walked with God. These are two sides, that is, worshiping God and walking with God. These are two sides of the answer to that famous first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is about worshiping Him and honoring Him and glorifying Him. It is also about enjoying Him. A relationship with Him, knowing Him and being known by Him. And we're going to see some of that tonight as we consider Enoch and ask ourselves, are we learning to walk in the ways of this forefather? So let me invite you to give your attention to God's holy word from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. This is the word of God. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Amen. This is the word of God. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord and our God, this is your word. And who is sufficient for these things? We ask that you would honor yourself, that you would speak to our hearts by your word by the work of your spirit and so bring glory to you and blessing to us in jesus name i pray amen amen what do we see in the saving faith of enoch what lessons do we learn tonight i just want to highlight three things with you and walk you through them in the first place we see the life saving faith receives at verse 5 Enoch doesn't taste death and so we need to consider life then secondly we see the relationship saving faith pursues he walked with God he it talks about seeks God draws near to God then finally we see the rewarder saving faith believes verse 6 and there we see the generosity of God to those who seek he rewards and we'll consider that So three things tonight. In the first place, the life saving faith receives. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up 
so that he should not see death, and he was not found because, because God had taken him. This is a man who did not die. Who was this guy? You may want to turn over to Genesis chapter 5 for a few moments as we consider briefly uh, who Enoch was. There's not much in the Bible about him. There's just a tiny bit more than I'll mention this evening. What do we know about him? Genesis 5 tells the tale. Genesis 5, you may remember, is a biography of uh, those who descend from Adam through Seth. And uh, in it, uh, we learn all the way down through Noah uh, about these patriarchs. We learn who their father was, who their son was, how long they lived, and for each, how long they lived before they died. For they are all the fallen sons of Adam after his image, and they all died except Enoch. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 5, this is the book, chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, and it goes on to speak, when Adam at verse 3 had lived 130 years, he fathered his own son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. And then it speaks of how long Seth lived, and then at verse 5, then Seth lived a certain number of years, and at the end of verse 8, he died. Then Enosh was born, and end of verse 11, he died. Then verse 12, Kenan was born, and then end of verse 14, he died. And then Mahalalel lived a certain number of years, end of verse 17, he died. Then Jared lived a certain number of years, end of verse 20, he died. Death to all, every last one except Enoch. Notice what it says, Genesis 5, verse 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. This is the phrase Hebrews picks up on. There's a lot we don't know about this mysterious figure. But what we do know is that he was taken up. He was removed. He was not found. They searched for him, but they couldn't find him. Why? Because God had taken him. That, that uh, taking of him isn't some euphemism for being eaten by an alligator or swallowed by a python or getting lost in a cave, starving to death, and just simply disappeared from sight. No, he did not see death, Hebrews chapter 11. In other words, he didn't go through the experience of it himself personally. He was translated directly into the presence of God. Now, he's not the only one in the Bible who had that experience. He is like the prophet Elijah, who later, when Elijah and his protege, so to speak, Elisha, were talking in 2 Kings chapter 2, they were talking, and then it says chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah didn't die. He just went right up to God. God took him where fallen human eyes cannot see. By faith, 
Hebrews chapter 11. We've already learned in verses 1 to 3. We believe in things our eyes cannot see. And Enoch, by faith, experienced realities as a man who never died. And this reminds us, this is what we're made for. This is why God created you. This is what we're here for. Life, not death. Life in God's presence. Souls in a body that will never die, living face to face with our Father in heaven forever and with one another. This is what you were created for. All that death in chapter 5 is not the way it's supposed to be. It's the way that is the result of sin. Adam, our first forefather, rebelled. And we in Adam come in sinful from conception and we all die. Why? Because we're all sinners. And this isn't what it's supposed to mean to be humanity. To be human. Enoch knew that the wages of sin is death. But he enjoyed the free gift of God which is eternal life. And didn't even taste death. Is it because he didn't sin? No. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 and following. He's a a descendant of Adam through Seth. Made in the likeness of Adam. Fallen humanity. But it is because God promised he would reverse the curse of the fall. Through the blood of the substitute in death. That substitute Abel professed as we saw last week at verse 4. When Abel came before God with a substitutionary sacrifice in death. When he offered an animal for sacrifice. It is through a substitute in death. And that substitute as we know is not the blood of bulls and goats. Which could never take away sin. But it is the precious blood of Christ. It is by that blood that sinners come to God. Abel, his predecessor, offered sacrifices that prefigured Christ. Enoch drew near to God in much the same way. He deserves to die. He knows the wages of sin is death. He knew without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness for sins. And he trusts in the provision of God's promise to supply the Lamb who takes away our sins. And he experiences something extraordinary that even we on this side of the coming of that Lamb don't ordinarily taste. He experienced life without death. This is not simply an invitation to marvel, though it is that. It's not simply an invitation to say, well, that sounds really nice for Enoch. Good for him. Glad he got that. But it is an invitation for you and I to actually long for this for ourselves. To share in the life which is in the presence of God that Enoch and Elijah have. How dare I say that when the likelihood is we're all going to die and they're going to put us in the ground. If the Lord does not return in our lifetime. Well, how can I say this? Because all who trust in Jesus will live forever in the presence of God. 
And some of us may not see death before that experience. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's the Bible's language for believers who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. How should we respond to that? The very next phrase, therefore encourage one another with these words. When your brothers and sisters in the church of the Lord Jesus are sick and tired of this world, when they are down in the dumps about themselves and they are just exhausted by the daily grind, by the injustice of this world, by bodily decay, by persecution, by suffering, by death, when they just can't stand it, any longer remind them that like Enoch, like Elijah, so it may be with you at the Lord's coming. And if not just like them, then certainly like the Lord Jesus who tasted death, was buried and rose from the grave and we will rise with him. Be encouraged, dear friends. Now, the second thing we see is not only the life that saving faith receives, but we see the relationship that saving faith pursues. Where at the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6, it speaks of, in Hebrews, uh, Enoch, in this language. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists or that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now what's that getting at? Well, what does faith do? What does it do? Our passage mentions it draws near to God. It mentions seeking him. And it mentions pleasing God. That's the language of Hebrews 11. In Genesis 5, it mentioned walking with God. In fact, in those four verses in Genesis 5 describing Enoch, it says twice of him that he walked with God. By faith, he walked with God. That wouldn't, as another put it, be a bad inscription on a gravestone for you. It tells us a lot about what Enoch's life and faith was like. He walked with God. Now, why? Does it say in Genesis he walked with God? In Hebrews, it ple- he pleased God. And as a side note, and very briefly, but if you want to know more, ask me about it later. In the what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the phrase walked with God is translated into the Greek pleased God. The words in Genesis in the Greek translation are the same as the words in Hebrews 11, which was written in Greek. And one of the reasons for that is that, as we know, the translators from the Hebrew to the Greek were very reticent to describe God in human characteristics. 
when they get to passages in the Old Testament that speak of God having, having arms or legs or eyes or, or here, walking, walk, I mean, if you're walking with him, he's walking with you. There was a reticence to translate that in that way. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was given to the Jews in that language. And here in Hebrews 11, under the same inspiration of that same spirit, it is translated pleased God, walking with God, pleasing God. These actually aren't two fundamentally different things. Don't get bent out of shape here. Amos chapter 3 verse 3 asks the question, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Walking together is mutual. Each does it because it pleases himself to do so. Otherwise you walk away and not walk with. Enoch does it because it pleases himself. To walk with the Lord. And God is pleased when he did so. And when we do so. It pleased God to walk with Enoch. It pleased God to invite Enoch to walk with himself. And obviously it pleased Enoch to walk with God for 300 years after the birth of his son. Do you walk with God? Does it please you to do so? Peter Lewis tells the story of a Chinese pastor who was imprisoned in a camp, a labor camp, for his faith in Jesus. His captors put him in charge of cleaning and emptying the latrine of the camp. And every day he would take the foul excrement out and distribute it in the, into the field as fertilizer. The smell was so bad, as you can imagine, that the guards drew away from him and gave him plenty of space to carry on his work and for that reason the pastor came to love his lowly occupation because in the resulting solitude he could talk and sing to God out loud both of which were otherwise forbidden within the camp and so he joyfully named the dung heap in which he worked his garden and he sang the words of that famous hymn I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the rose and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known or none but his loved ones know By faith, even in misery, we may walk with God, talk with God, have fellowship with God, commune with God. The Lord is pleased to do so with His people, and He's pleased with His people as we do so. Faith pleases God. It walks with God. Faith also, we learn in Hebrews 11, it draws near to God. That's what it does. For whoever would draw near to God, he says. Now, this is an expression that is used throughout the book of Hebrews in a variety of places. In chapter 4, verse 16, we are exhorted to draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus, our great high priest, has entered the throne room on our behalf. And so that throne of judgment has become a throne of grace to us that we might find mercy and help in our time of need. Draw 
near. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, the author says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We draw near to God in worship and in prayer. We cry to him in time of need. We receive mercy and help. Saving faith quits walking away from him to come back to him, to draw near to him through Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith does, and it seeks him. Notice the very end of verse 6 mentions those who seek him. The King James translation there translates it diligently seek. The New International Version mentions earnestly seek. But scholars are divided on whether there's an intensification of the word or not. So the New American Standard and the ESV just simply says, seek. There's not another word in there exactly. Uh, But the the idea of seeking there comes from uh, the context of beating a path uh, as you walk back and forth. The idea that if you seek your neighbor often, you'd beat a path through the grass on the way to his door and back. And again on the way to his door and back. Some of you don't have that experience, but your dog has probably worn paths, well-worn paths in your yard so the grass doesn't grow. Where they have beat a path to a destination, both drawing near and seeking, speak of something we deliberately and we intentionally do. You don't accidentally draw near to the Holy One of Israel. You do it on purpose. And Enoch here did so. And you don't draw near to an it, to an idea, to a theological proposition. You draw near and you seek and you walk with a person. One who is loving. One who is caring. One who sees and who hears and who communicates and Enoch did for 300 years and uh, other pastors have told the story. I don't know if it was J. Vernon McGee who told it first. I sort of doubt. But he tells it like this. A little girl came home from Sunday school and her mother said, what did your teacher teach you today? And she said, well, she told us all about Enoch. And the mother said, well, what about him? And so the little girl, girl told her mother this story that Enoch lived a long time ago and God would come every day to his home and say Enoch would you like to take a walk with me and Enoch would say yes I'd like to take a walk with you God and so every day God and Enoch would walk together and one day God came by and said Enoch let's take a long walk today I want to talk to you and so they started out. Enoch got his coat and he packed his lunch and they went off together on their walk and they walked and they walked and they walked and it finally got late and Enoch said, it's getting late, I better go back. And God said to him, Enoch, you're closer to my home than you are to your own. Why don't you just come on in and stay a while? And so Enoch went home with God and there he remained. That is what you were made for. That is the destiny of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the kind of person who is drawing near, who is seeking him, who who walks 
with him. And if you're not, why not? And if you refuse to walk with the God who made you here on earth, why do you think you'll be taken up one day into the new heavens and new earth to walk with him there? If you don't walk with God now, why do you think you're going to walk with Him later? The enjoyment of those streets of gold, walking face to face and shoulder to shoulder with your Savior, is for those who have begun to walk with Him now. Where does that desire, where does that ability come from? Especially if you find in your heart a reluctance Hebrews chapter 13 verse 21 says, May the Lord equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight. What is pleasing in His sight, He works in us. Where do you get it? You get it from God. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both to will and to work. If you find your heart unwilling, just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm unwilling, but I'm willing to be made willing. Help me. Help me walk with you. I want to walk with you. I repent of not walking with you. I haven't been walking with you. Grant, O Lord. As Augustine prayed, and we might pray with him, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God works in us what is pleasing to himself and what is pleasing to him is walking with him and so we see the life that saving faith receives and we see the relationship that saving faith pursues and finally we see the rewarder saving faith believes verse six and here we see the generosity of God. Notice verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's no substitute for faith here. Trusting in God to be your Savior through Jesus Christ. This is the faith he's speaking of. And he highlights two beliefs in that faith. Faith in God's person. Faith in God's promises. First, in his person. Whoever would draw near must believe that he is, that he exists. Your faith needs an object. He's not advocating faith in faith. You hear a lot about that. People talk about, well, you need to take a leap of faith. You just need to believe. But they don't tell you what you're supposed to believe in. And he's reminding you that you're supposed to believe in someone Not believe in yourself, not believe in an idea, not believe just to believe, but believe in who? Believe in God. Which God? The God of this book is the God he's speaking of, not the God of your own imagination. Some of you uh, have read uh, J.B. Phillips' little book, Your God is Too Small, which he describes some of the common gods that people make up out of their own imagination. One is the grand old man, God, the fatherly grandparent, white-haired indulgent, who always smiles down on people and winks at their adultery, who winks at their stealing, who winks at their cheating, who winks at their lying, because he's just a doting old fool. That's not the God he's talking about. You know that people think of God sometimes as the resident policeman, whose primary job is to make life 
unenjoyable for people or difficult. That's not the God he's talking about. He's not talking about God in a box. The private and exclusive sectarian God, J.B. Phillips describes, the God for you and you only and for others who think just exactly like you about everything. The God you shrink down into a box that you have built. And then there's the managing director God, the God of the deist, the God of design and created the universe, started it spinning and watches it unfurl from a distance as it runs down, but not a God who's intimately evolved in all our ways. These are not the gods he's talking about believing exist, but he means the one true living God who has revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am, the Holy One of Israel, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to rule and reign over all things. That's who he's talking about believing exists, and so drawing near to him. And not only believing in him, but believing in his promises, not just his person, but his promises. He rewards those who seek him. You see that language at the end of verse 6. He's personal and he responds to our cries for mercy, our requests for help, our desire to know him, and he uncovers himself to us. There's nothing here in this language of reward that's an invitation to a kind of a mercenary attitude about all this. C.S. Lewis, I think, helpfully puts it this way. We must not be troubled, he says, by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money, for example, is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage, he goes on to say, is the proper reward for a real lover, and he's not mercenary for desiring it. God rewards those who do what? Those who seek him. What is the reward? Himself. Seek him and you will find him. Desire to know him and you will know him. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1. God said to Abraham, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. To those who seek him. He rewards them with himself. That is not payment. It is a gift. As another put it, to think of faith as meritorious or establishing a claim on God and his rewards is to do violence to the very concept of faith, which is the response of total dependence on the grace and goodness of God. It is sheer profanity insists a French Catholic, interestingly, in 1512, just five years before Luther's 95 Theses, 
It is a sheer profanity, he says, to speak of the merit of works, especially in the presence of God. For plainly, merit does not ask a favor, but demands what is due. And to attribute merit to works is virtually to share the opinion of those who believe that we can be justified by works. A great error, he goes on to say. So let us be silent about the merit of our works, which amounts to very little or rather nothing at all. And let us magnify the grace of God, which is everything. He who defends merit respects man. He who defends grace respects God. If merit is to be attributed to anyone, it is properly and completely attributed to Christ, who has merited everything for us. While we, confessing that before God we deserve nothing, look to him for grace. Those who seek him, he rewards with himself. Those who walk with him in this life, he brings to himself in the next for a fellowship and joy that will last forever. And it is his gracious crowning gift to those whom he has graced. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Let's draw near to that God who makes those promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grant us to know the joy and the freedom and the the experience more and more of his love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.